Well, we are in the midst of graduation season. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but there is a lot of graduations happening. I did not realize this, that there are graduations for nearly everything. Kindergarten graduation, fifth grade graduation, sixth grade, eighth grade, high school, college. I'm sure somebody somewhere is going to create another graduation and we'll all be doomed to have to attend those kinds of things too. But as you all know, you're, you're going to graduation celebrations. And what you always see at a graduation and what you see at graduation parties is you always see people taking pictures every time. And right when the event starts, you just see the hand go up in the air just holding the phone. And you know exactly what's about to happen. And you're like, oh, man, now I can't see. You know how that works. And what's really interesting is graduation season is all about taking these pictures because we don't want this moment to vanish. We, we want to commemorate this moment. We want to hold and treasure the feelings and, and all the excitement of all of that. And so we're taking pictures and videos to try to do the best we can to preserve that moment. But we all know the reality is those moments are fleeting. They will quickly vanish. And no amount of pictures and videos are ever going to capture what it was like to be there. You know what I'm talking about. And, but we take the pictures anyways. And when we take those pictures, we get our phone or we, we get the pictures because we print them out because we're old school. And we're actually looking at them. And we, we see them and we're holding them. And we remember the hugs and the laughter. We remember the joy. But then also something sets in oftentimes and you start to feel sad as you remember the joy. Because you remember, oh, that was a great day and we can't go back and relive it. But then you're joyful even in your sadness at the joy because you realize, but it really did happen. The kid's out of the house. This is awesome. <laughs> and so there's, there's all of those emotions that are going on, right? Well, in some ways, I have to tell you, that's what communion ought to be like. We are putting in our hands tangibly these symbols, this, this bread and this cup, which are symbols. They represent the body and the blood of Jesus. And so with our eyes and with our hands and with our minds, we are reminding ourselves of the person and the work of Jesus. And there's great joy there as we remember our salvation. But then there's sadness to think that Jesus was crucified. What a bloody, disgusting mess that must have been. And yet we're joyous, even in our sadness, at the joy. It's great. And communion is all about bringing to our minds the truth of the gospel. It's about bringing to our minds and our memory the person and work of Jesus. And so this sermon today is kind of a part two to last week's sermon. I realize that you middle school and high school kids weren't here last week. And I realize even your parents may not have been here. So you are probably sad that you missed that. But technology is what it is. You can go back and listen to it. But I want to start by just reviewing a little bit for what we talked about last week, which will set the kind of trajectory of what we want to do today. So let me pray for us as we jump into it. Father, thank you for this day. God, we thank you for gathering us in this place, for calling us to yourself, for the reality that we are sons and daughters of the King. God, we bear your name, those of us who have repented and believed the gospel. We are counted among your people. And we've gathered in this place to meet you, to learn from you. And so we're asking, Lord, that you would be in and amongst us and you would teach us. So God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the privilege it is to pray it, to preach it, and to sing it. 
And through it, we come to know you truly. And so, God, thank you for this time. So be with us now, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week's sermon was 2 Peter. 2 Peter. And I know that your little outline says 1 Corinthians 11. We'll get there. Got to lay some groundwork first. 2 Peter chapter 1. We learned there that the apostle Peter is calling us as the church. And remember, I was trying to emphasize the us-ness of the church with the language y'all. And you have to remember, we as a church are known primarily as a gathering of individuals. Not as individuals, but a gathering. That's our primary identity is y'all. We as the church are to remember the qualities that flow from the gospel. And the qualities were found in verses 5 through 7, which are a list of character traits that we should pursue. And if we pursue these character traits, these qualities, the apostle Peter says we will never fall. Not only that, but we will not become blind. And not only that, but pursuing these qualities will keep us from being ineffective and unfruitful. And to put it positively, if we pursue these qualities, we won't fall, we won't be blind, but most importantly, we are going to be productive in our relationship with God. We saw that the gospel is the foundation of all Christian faith. The gospel is how we grow in our faith. You see, when you repent and believe in the gospel, you are given life and you are forgiven of your sins. And the penalty for sins is taken from you because it's been placed sufficiently, permanently on God the Son. And so the wrath of God has been satisfied. So Peter wants to make sure that we never forget the gospel. But we also saw last week that the knowledge of God is essential to the gospel. The knowledge of God, a cognitive apprehension, an understanding with the mind and also treasured with the heart. That kind of knowledge is essential to the gospel. It's essential to salvation. You even see it in the Old Testament where the prophet Jeremiah tells people, don't boast in your riches. Don't boast in your wisdom. Don't boast in your might. But he who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, declares the Lord. And so the Lord wants us to know him, that he is a God who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in all the earth. And the apostle Paul goes on to say, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Philippians 3.8, he, he considers it all a loss. Everything in the world is a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes through faith and is from God. And so we see that knowledge is essential to what it means to be a Christian. And so we pick it up in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, where the apostle Peter preaches and prays about the centrality of Christ and the beauty of the gospel. And he says in verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge or by the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And what he means is that God's grace of growing us into Christ's likeness and also the peace of having an ordered life, which is ordered in the likeness of Jesus, that those things are multiplied to us. They happen within us through knowing God. And so we see that if we are going to abandon the pursuit of knowing God, then in essence what we're doing is saying, I don't want a multiplication of grace and peace in my life. I'm good where I'm at. And yet he goes on to actually say that in verse 3, 
that even knowledge is the means by which God grants us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so it's through the knowledge of God that the Holy Spirit is doing an inner work in us and thus providing for us everything you need in order to live a life which is godly and pleasing to the Lord. And so you don't need extra stuff. You don't need to go beyond the gospel. You don't need to go somewhere else in order to figure out how to live a life which is pleasing to God. God has provided you everything that you need. Everything that pertains to life and godliness is yours through knowing him. And then we see in verse 4 that God grants us his precious and very great promises. And I asked last week, what do you do with promises? You're supposed to believe them. And then the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all of the promises of God find their completion or fulfillment in the person of Jesus. And so we are to believe in Jesus. And by believing in Jesus, we are given life and we escape death and hell and the wrath of God. And so the conclusion is that God the Father has given to us God the Son to redeem us from our sins And God the Son has given us God the Spirit so that we would be resourced to obey and to love God and others. And so it's no wonder that Peter ends his letter in 2 Peter by saying, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a command. But the question is, how do we do that? And we do that through knowing God truly through his word. And in knowing God truly in his word, we can actually grow in the grace that God provides. And then the gospel, we understand, is the foundation. In verse 2 and 3 and 4, it's the foundation for those qualities. And we find those qualities in verses 5 through 7. These qualities, once again, they keep you from falling, keep you from becoming, becoming blinded. You are productive if you pursue these qualities. But we read in verse 5, That for this very reason, in other words, because of the gospel, we are to make every effort to supplement our faith with those things. And we learned last week that we cannot pursue these lists or the qualities in this list, which is obedience and faithfulness to God. We cannot pursue those things as a substitute for remembering the gospel. Instead, you must first and foremost remember the gospel, and then flowing out of the gospel comes the motivation to pursue obedience. So we cannot flip-flop that where you pursue obedience in order to be accepted by God. Instead, you remember that you are accepted by God because of Christ, and therefore we act in obedience. Okay? Faith precedes the working. Now, that's significant because you and I are tempted to pursue obedience at the expense of the gospel. Sometimes we forget the gospel and we just say, forget it. You know, that's, that's, the gospel is for unbelievers. The gospel is how you get saved. And so I'm done with all that. I'm moving on to the deeper things. You know what I'm talking about. You've heard that before. And yet one of the things we must realize is this is if you abandon the gospel in order to pursue the deep things at the expense of a concerted concentration in remembering the gospel, pretty soon 
you're going to experience something that you never anticipated. And what you will experience is one of two things. Firstly, you may experience pride. You experience the feeling of your own superiority to that of those around you. You feel that you are uniquely qualified to give expert advice to other people since you have proven how good you are at living your own life. And so you will look down your nose at others and go, man, you just need to do this and follow me. And, and all you have to do is do this and do this. And, and then if they fail and your accountability partners can't get their act together, you kind of look at them and go, man, these guys I need to find new accountability partners. They're, they're holding me down. What pride and arrogance at the expense of the gospel. Or a second thing that we might experience is feeling the weightiness and being crushed under your disobedience. And what I mean is you can feel crushed to the point that you feel utterly defeated. And what ends up happening is you begin to hide your true self from those around you to the fact that your own accountability partners have no idea what's going on in your mind and heart. You are hiding. Your own spouse is oblivious to your own frustrations and your own pains and struggles. And so you live your life with this low-grade sense of shame and embarrassment most days. So if you're a Christian here today and you resonate with those things where you sense at times you are being prideful, or you sense at times that you're feeling the weight of your sin crushing you, then more than likely what's happened is you have forgotten the gospel. And if you don't identify as a Christian today, but you also resonate with that, that you feel at times, you look around you at your coworkers and family members and you just feel so superior to them. Or if at times you look at your life and you realize, man, I am not living the way I even want to, let alone the way I should. And you're feeling the weight of your own sin. Then you need to repent and believe the gospel. That's your only hope. Both for the Christian and the unchristian alike, the only hope you have to be free of your pride and the free and to experience the freeness of your from your the weightiness of your sin is to repent and believe the gospel. And so if you're not a Christian, it's kind of hard because you're like, what does that even mean? Repent means you stop sinning. <laughs> you just you stop trying to justify yourself before a holy God through your own achievement and performance. You put to death all that stuff. And instead you turn to God and you trust God and you rely on God. And how that usually happens is by you in your own mind and heart, either audibly or internally, you confess that, God, I feel the weightiness of my sin. I recognize my pride. I recognize my defeat, my defeated experience. And then you confess, God, I believe that you can free me from this through Jesus. And God will set you free. You see, we're saved from our sins and the consequences of our sins through faith in the gospel. In fact, Romans 1.16 says this, the Apostle Paul, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he writes, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, there are no prerequisites to salvation. You must not be white you must not be black. You must not be educated. You must not have a college degree. You must not be middle class or above. You must not be poor. You must not be Western. 
You must not be Eastern. There is none of that when it comes to the gospel. For God has told us in Revelation 5 that he, by his blood, is ransoming people from every tongue and tribe and nation and people group. And so regardless of your socioeconomic standing, your race, your education, or whatever, God is beckoning you, come. If you are heavy laden and tired and burdened and weary, then you can be set free. Come, repent, and believe the gospel. And you will be saved. That's the power of the gospel. And so that low-grade sense of shame and embarrassment, which is an indicator that something is not right in your life, or that, that pride that you have as an indicator that something is not right, by repenting and believing the gospel, you will be set free from those things. You see, Jesus lived a sinless life, the kind of life you and I cannot He also took upon himself the curse for our sins by being nailed to a Roman cross, bearing the fullness of the wrath of God. His blood was the payment for sins, and we know that his death is sufficient to forgive sins because he rose from the dead. The resurrection life that he now possesses, he offers to us. So if you believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose to save you from your sins and the wrath of God, you will be given incorruptible life and escape death. Your sins will be forgiven. You will have your conscience cleansed by the blood of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, and you will begin to experience the reviving that God promises should you repent. I don't know about you, but when you hear that kind of stuff, you go, man, I want that. All of us are searching for that, whether you realize it or not. Most of our pursuits of vacations is to somehow experience a time in which we can leave the work and leave the stresses and experience this time where we'll be free from all the weightiness of this world. You know what I'm talking about? And so we're believing that vacation is the gospel. Vacation will set me free. Or maybe a job change. I have too much stress and too much this. And if I just get a new job, that will, that will make me free. And so your job, your new job is the vacation. Your new spouse is the gospel. Because this spouse is keeping me down. If I leave this one and get a new one, yeah, that'll work. And so all of us are pursuing that thing, whatever it may be, that we believe will ultimately satisfy us and give meaning and significance to our life and will justify our existence and will absolve or remove all of the weight of sin that we feel. And brothers and sisters, those are all false gospels. The only thing and the only person who could possibly set you free is Jesus. And so if you repent and believe in Jesus, you will be set free. We are sanctified also through the power of the gospel. You see, many Christians believe that the power of the gospel is exclusively for the salvation of unbelievers. But the reality is, no, the gospel is also the power of sanctification for those who are believers. Romans 1.17, the apostle Paul writes this, For in it, which is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Think about that. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, the power for faithful living is found in the gospel. 
Now, there's so many books out there about the power of, like, whatever, you know, the power of living free, the power of blah, 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 blah. And it's all this Christian self-help nonsense, like, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and empower you to experience all the potential you ever had and to realize and maximize your fullness and all this stuff. And so what ends up happening is we're like, I'm going to buy that book because that book is about me. I'm going to make myself great. I'm going to become awesome, even more awesome than I am. I'm going to read this book. And what ends up happening is you realize that all of that stuff is powerless. It's powerless. All of that stuff may satisfy a curiosity. It may satisfy you for a moment. But the real power of faithfully living before a holy God is found in no other thing and no other place than the gospel. Therefore, you can't forget the gospel. Or else you abandon the power. The gospel humbles us in our pride because it reminds us that it is God alone who has provided us with what we need to be saved and to obey. How can you be arrogant and prideful when everything you have and everything you are and everything you've done is owing ultimately to God? The gospel also encourages us in our failures because it reminds us that because of God's grace, we are forgiven. And when we fail, God reminds us that his grace and his mercy are sufficient. So stand up, dust yourself off, and trust the promises of God and press on. And so it sets us free. So be diligent to pursue the things of God. All right, that's just the intro. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 11. This is our communion text. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote about communion. And the reason why it's significant to lay the foundation of the gospel as we approach communion is because this text, let me show you the word remember. The Apostle Paul writes this in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let me ask you a question, brothers and sisters. Communion is about remembering what? I preached last week, it's about remembering the gospel. Like the whole Christian life is about remembering the gospel. So when we come to communion, what are we remembering, Jesus or the gospel? And the answer is yes. (laughs) Yes. And the reason that it's yes is because the gospel is all-encompassing and the gospel is primarily concerned with Jesus. So let me show you some stuff. If you make a right-hand turn in your Bible, 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going to turn to focus on the gospel. You see, in communion, we come to hold in our hands and gaze with our eyes and recall with our minds the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. These elements are like the pictures that we take during graduation season. They thrust us back to what they signify. 
And so when you take the cup and you take the bread in your hands, your mind is being thrusted back to what the, they symbolize, namely the finished work of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. So we pick it up in 1 Corinthians 15, and I want to show you the centrality of the gospel and the emphasis of Christ within it. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. Now I would remind you, brothers, there's our word again, I remind you. So this isn't just a Peter thing, this is a Paul thing. I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. That's his emphasis. And we talked about last week. Nobody forgets what they do not know. You can only forget something you know. So when the Apostle Paul says, I'm reminding you of something, he already knows that they know the gospel. He's just reminding them of it. And then he does three things with the gospel. He's describing it. He says, this gospel I preach to you, which you received. Which means the gospel has application in our past. Those of us who are Christians have heard the gospel. We have repented and we have believed it. And thus we are saved from our sins and we are adopted as children of God. And we anticipate the Lord's return where he will usher in the new heavens and new earth. Called heaven oftentimes. And so we know that the gospel is something in the past that we once believed. And many Christians take that perspective. Yeah, the gospel is what I once believed, and now i got to move on to the deeper things. Except for the Apostle Paul would have none of that. Look at the next thing he says. Yes, you received it. Yes, you believed it in the past. But he says the gospel has a present reality. It's something in which you stand. You as a Christian currently are standing in the gospel. That is, unless you're not. Unless you've gone on to the deeper things. And so the Apostle Paul would encourage us, Christians, don't think that the gospel is something which is only relevant for salvation. But you must remember that you presently stand in the power of the gospel for your own sanctification. Deeper knowledge of God is really just deeper knowledge of the gospel. And then the third thing he says, which is astounding to me. In verse 2, and this gospel that I preached to, the Apostle Paul says, which you received and you currently stand, also has a future orientation and by which you are being saved. Which means there's a, there's a future dimension to the gospel. It doesn't mean that you are partially saved, like two-thirds of your soul is now saved. Like it's on layaway or something. you got to work out that last one-third, buddy. It's not like that. Paul is simply saying that the gospel will bring salvation to completion. That when Jesus returns, which is part of the good news, and Jesus ushers in the new heavens and new earth where he reigns supreme as king of kings and lord of lords, that's the completion, the culmination of the gospel. And so God is faithful. Remember Philippians 1.6? That the work he began in you, he will see to completion. And so the gospel is bringing you not only salvation in the past, salvation in the present, but the ultimate culmination of salvation when we get to behold Jesus face to face. And so we say, Lord Jesus, come. Bring salvation to completion. And then he says this, which is going to shock you. You're going to stop breathing for a second. He then writes that there's a condition to all this. If, he says, if. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, which is the gospel. If you hold fast to the gospel. 
meaning you will be saved. You, you're, you're, the, the work that God began and you will see to completion if you hold to the gospel all the way through. And then he says, unless you believed in vain. In other words, unless your faith wasn't truly faith. So the only way to be sure that you are going to make it to the end is if your every single day is a life of remembering and living and trusting the gospel. And if we wake up on some days and just go, yeah, the gospel, whatever, move on to the deeper things, and we abandon all that and we just pursue obedience, thinking that God will accept us because of our performance and abandon the gospel, there is a warning here. You must continue to believe the gospel all the way through. That's the only confidence you have. Now, you're probably thinking, oh, wait a minute, that scares the life out of me. I know. Colossians 1.21, David read Colossians 1, and then we pick it up where he left off. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, God is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And here's our condition, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. There is a condition. If you stop believing the gospel, you won't be saved. If you stop believing the gospel, does that mean you were once saved and now no longer saved? No. Remember John 2.19? Those who go out from us, who stop believing the gospel, the fact that they abandon the gospel is evidence that they never really believed it. For those who truly believe the gospel, keep believing the gospel. So the warning is really a way in which God reminds us, repent and believe me, believe me, believe me. I don't know about you, but that kind of stuff just makes me pause. And the reason it makes me pause is because I think a, well, a lot of well-meaning pastors and a lot of well-meaning camp speakers are encouraging kids to pray the sinner's prayer at camp. And I know people who prayed that prayer 13 times. Every opportunity. I'm doing it. Now's it. Now I can be sure. <laughs> now it's for real. Now I'm truly sincere. Now it really means something. And then you live your life, sending your brains out. And you're just wondering what in the world's going on in my life as you go back to camp and then you hear the preacher, who wants to be saved? I do. Pray this prayer. Okay. And you pray the sinner's prayer and you're like, good, I'm good. Until next year. And then I'll do it all again. What's happening between the two camps, like, you know, summer camp, summer camp, get saved, get saved. You keep getting saved every summer. Is the time in between? You have forgotten the gospel. So repent and believe the gospel. Because the only confidence you really have of your own salvation is this. Do I believe the gospel? And I don't understand how people can live their lives waking up every morning just not, just basing their salvation and security and confidence on their own performance. You wake up in the morning and you're like, man, I, I know that at camp I was truly sincere. So today I know I'm saved because my sincerity of my nine-year-old heart. That's what you're trusting? Sincerity? 
Or I, I, truly, I truly know that I'm saved because look, look, the whole day, this whole day I'm setting apart to the Lord. I'm going to obey him today and I know that God will accept me because of the way I live today. Until you get to the nighttime and you look back on your day and you're like, oh, oh. If my acceptance before God is based on how I live my life today, I'm screwed. I don't know what to do. So the alternative is better. Believe the gospel. So when you wake up in the morning, you remember the psalm, satisfies this morning with your steadfast love, O God, that I may rejoice and be glad all my days. And you remember Lamentations 3 where you wake up and you remember your mercies are new every morning. And at the end of the day, you reflect back and you say, God, apart from the grace of God, I'm nothing. I did what I could today, and I know in my failures, your grace is going to be there, and your mercy is enough. And I know in, my, in, in the accomplishments and achievements, the things I did positively, it's all owing to your grace. And so you can lay your head down at night confident that God is for you and not against you, not because you're truly sincere, but because Jesus is sufficient. Amen. So what are we doing in communion? Brothers and sisters, what we're doing in communion is we are remembering the gospel by remembering Jesus. Because the gospel centers on Jesus. Don't believe me? 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 3. The apostle Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance. The most important thing in your life is the gospel. That's what the Bible says. The gospel is the most important thing in your life. And Paul is delivering the gospel. Now look at the subject or the content of the gospel. This is amazing. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That Christ was buried. That Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That Christ appeared to save us. Then to the 12. That Christ appeared to more than 500 disciples at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That Christ appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, Christ appeared also to me. Brothers and sisters, what is the gospel fundamentally about? Jesus, not you. But what's crazy is all this false gospel preaching that you hear nowadays is, is more like this. You are great and awesome and lovely and doggone it, people like you. <laughs> and if you will just come to Jesus, he will help you to achieve and to maximize your full potential. And in doing that, you, my friends, will be happy. That kind of preaching is from hell. Amen. And the reason is this. The goal of your faith is you. You. I want a bigger me. I want more awesome me. I want a greater me. And how I get that is Jesus. So Jesus becomes a means to an end. In other words, you're using Jesus to make more, much of your own self. I hate to say it, brothers and sisters, but God does not give his glory to another. And God will not be used. God will not be mocked. And God will not allow you to use his salvation as a license for immorality, namely to put yourself up as the greatest thing in the world. 
Instead, I know that sounds harsh, but we have to understand the gospel is fundamentally about Jesus. Jesus rescued you for your, from your sin so that he may be glorified. Jesus came to redeem us from the wrath of God so that God may be glorified. So that in everything, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let us not be glory robbers by believing and preaching a false gospel. The gospel is about Jesus. Hope I made myself clear. If not, I'm going to go to Romans chapter 1 and just show you with utter quickness how the Apostle Paul introduces himself in his call to ministry. He says, I, Paul, servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. And then he describes Jesus, descended from David, resurrected, or, uh, crucified and resurrected. And then verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is about Jesus. That means true gospel-centered churches preach Jesus, sing Jesus, pray Jesus, and live like Jesus. Not in order to become a better, more powerful, more awesome you, but to become more like him. Because Romans 8 is very clear. Salvation came to us so that we would be conformed into the image of Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. And then there's the beauty of grace. And what's amazing is the New Testament doesn't just say the gospel is about Jesus, but also that the gospel is about Jesus and how through Jesus, God's grace comes to us and transforms us. It's the beauty of grace. Acts 20, 24, the apostle Paul says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the, test and the ministry that I receive from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see, brothers and sisters, the gospel is about Jesus. But it's also about the grace of God that we find in Jesus. And so I would summarize the gospel as simply being God's grace to sinners in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. The gospel is not about performance. The gospel is not about achieving because those two things would nullify grace. Instead, the gospel is about God's grace. It's about God's unmerited favor that God came to rescue sinners, not because they deserve it or because we somehow wooed God or coerced God, but because of God's great love for us, he lavished his grace and mercy upon us by sending Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sin and to grant us life everlasting that we may be participants in his holy family and that we would dwell with him forever and ever in a place called the new heavens and new earth where there's no more sin, no more death, no more pain, only righteousness, ever-increasing joy. And so, brothers and sisters, the gospel is about Jesus and the grace that we're given in Jesus. We're saved by grace through faith. You've heard that. But also we're sanctified by grace. Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. 
The grace of God trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God, brothers and sisters, is the motivator for all obedience. 1 Corinthians 15.10. The Apostle Paul says, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, look at what Paul says. I worked harder than, harder than any of the other disciples. You see, Paul, I'm working. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You better work your butt off. Knowing that it's not you working, it's God working in you and through you. It's not about you. It's about God. So when we come to communion, here's what happens, brothers and sisters. When we come to communion, we are coming to remember Jesus. The good news of the glorious grace of God. Second Peter, or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 says this. It's a command. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's a command, which means every one of us who are Christians, you must obey this command. Here's the command. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So let me ask you, Christians, how do you plan on obeying that command? How do you plan on being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ? And here's where communion comes in. If the gospel is about Jesus and Jesus is grace appearing, then to be strengthened by the grace appearing in the person of Jesus Christ is to remember the gospel. Do you want strength to live the rest of today in holiness and obedience? Do you want to wake up tomorrow with the joy of the Lord in your heart, eager to obey? You better remember the gospel. For remembering the gospel strengthens us. The gospel fundamentally centers on the person and work of Jesus. So to remember the gospel is to remember Jesus. Communion is when Jesus told us to remember him. So in communion, this is how God strengthens us by his grace. There's something more that is going on here than meets the eye, the hand, and the mind. When you take the bread and you take the cup, you're not just eating stale bread and grape juice. But you are taking these symbols into your hand. And you are recalling with your mind the glorious grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ to be crucified and risen for your salvation, for his glory and your joy. And as you remember that by faith, God strengthens you. There's actual, a, a, a literal spiritual effect that happens. So brothers and sisters, let's come to the table and thus be strengthened, shall we? So, Father, I ask that in the moments that we have laying before us, that you would be pleased to strengthen us by your grace. For we know that in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We know that in Christ, the grace of God has appeared. We know that by your grace, you train us to say no to ungodliness. You train us to live holy lives. And by your grace... You are motivating us and sustaining us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in us to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Thank you. 
And God, we know that all this comes through knowing you. And thank you for the Bible. Through it, we get to know you. And so, Lord, we give you all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.